this episode of the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. And in today's episode, we are going to be discussing the 2021 French Open, which recently concluded. Um, but before we really dive into um, what had, what took place in the French Open um, and sort of an analysis on um, some of the, the different pieces of it, um, we're going to actually revisit um, our last conversation, which was uh, really talking about expectations. Um, and uh, in this conversation, we, we were talking about um, some of the players that were playing in the French Open um, and some of the expectations that were placed on some of these players. Uh, one of the players that we discussed was Naomi Osaka. And uh, we recorded the episode on the Sunday, on, um, Sunday, which was the opening day of the French Open. Um, and uh, at that point, um, just to, to catch everybody up to speed, um, she had made a statement essentially saying that she wasn't going to be doing any press, any sort of media um, interviews um, during the tournament. Um, she said that this was um, for her mental health. Um, and uh, she also noted that um, she wanted any sort of um, fines that she uh, received to, to go to a, a mental health related organization. Um, so what happened after that, and I, I think we had mentioned this, this that day because that Sunday she had had her first match. Um, she won her first match, um, decided not to do media, and was fined $15,000. Um, and at that point, um, this is when, um, and correct me, Brian, if I'm uh, mixing up any of the, the steps here, but this is when um, not just the French Open, but the governing bodies from all four Grand Slams put together a statement as a whole, essentially saying that if she, if she or any other players continued with this kind of behavior of boycotting um, their, their media um, obligations, you could say, um, that they would um, have consequences, including fines, but also including the possibility of um, not being able to play uh, the, the current tournament, the French Open, as well as possibly future tournaments. Um, so they came out with that statement, and shortly after, Naomi Osaka decided to withdraw from the tournament. Um, and at the time, um, on the Sunday when we recorded uh, the um, episode on expectations, um, Brian and I had talked about about this um, situation, and we had um, both expressed our sympathy for what um, Naomi was was going through, and our, our support for. Um, for a player taking a stand um, in, in favor of trying to prioritize um, their own mental health. So we'll, we'll start um, today's conversation um, picking up from um, that, that conversation um, on expectations, and then we'll get into a little bit more on um, some of the winners and the runners up and some of the, the key matches from the 2021 French open. Yeah. And I think, you know, if we revisit, what happened afterwards. Uh, I don't think it really changes our position at all um, in terms of how we discussed it in that, that previous episode. Um, I'm not surprised that that's the step she took. I think many maybe were surprised, but, you know, it, um, uh, given the statement by the four Grand Slams, she was put into a corner. And, um, and I think her response was, um, again, she prioritized herself. I mean, we could say that she prioritized her mental health. I think it's really she's just prioritizing herself, which I think is the right thing to do as the, as the player. 
Um, she, of course, received a lot of flack you know, for the original statement and then certainly afterwards um, for not doing the press. And I think, uh, as we even covered, you know, today's press it's a more traditional model. There are many other models of, of uh, media that are going on today. And, uh, you know, there's not a lot of great stories that are necessarily broken in those press conferences. It's not that the quotes aren't valuable. And in fact, we're going to use some quotes from press conferences today in our discussion of, um, you know, some of the things that happened at the, at the French Open. But I think, um, you know, you know, what Naomi did was um, in, a, in a way not surprising um, again, she prioritized herself. I think the the Grand Slams came out of this looking quite bad uh, for their their heavy handed approach to it, um, really forcing the hand of one of the you know the shining stars on the tour. Um, they didn't have to do that. Um, I believe the head of uh, the French Federation claimed that they tried to work something out with her, but that the, her camp was unresponsive. Um, Hard to verify that whether that's true or not. Um, so you know we won't we won't know. But um, it was a shame that that it had to come to that. And uh, you know I think everybody of course is wishing Naomi well, and that you know she'll be back. Um, you know she's obviously got to take care of herself. Yeah, and I think it's good even just like this is a podcast about tennis and sports psychology. You know when you think of sports psychology or or maybe just to explain this, there are really two branches a professional in this field can take. Um, you can work in performance, which is what Josh and I do. We, we typically work with athletes who are looking to enhance their performance. They may have some, you know, some things that they need to work on, self-talk, negativity, perfection, um, et cetera, or anxiety. Um, but then there's a more clinical side, which is what, um, so it's still a sports psychologist could still do performance, but they may be licensed to work with clinical issues such as depression, eating disorders, um, you know, some other types of maybe uh, uh, a type of anxiety that is you know beyond just a, a performance issue. So there are really those two fields uh, that have uh, in sports psychology, and you know it's really important that that branch, that the piece, the clinical piece, is out there for for athletes. We're hearing so much more about mental health with athletes and, um, you know, in certain circumstances or in certain contexts, more of the sports psychologists being hired have clinical backgrounds. We're seeing a lot of that at the college level, for sure. Um, seeing it uh, as well at the, at the pro level and, you know, even institutionally different uh, leagues or uh, even things like the ATP or WTA are you know working more with people on the clinical side to make sure that the, the athletes are remain healthy. I would also say that you know, and we'll look at this with um, the women's finalists, um, Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova and Barbara Krejcikova, both of whom work with sports psychology professionals. That it's also important to be working with somebody who can um, help you with performance. Very often, when you're working on performance, you can build coping skills, resilience, etc. That can hopefully help you deal with life's challenges in a better way. They don't guarantee any results of not suffering clinical issues, but they can really strengthen people for that. So I think it's great that we have two branches of sports psychology. And, you know, this uh, Naomi's, Naomi Osaka's situation kind of brings up, you know, what is really happening in the world of sports psychology. There's a lot of things going on in, in both sides of that. 
Yeah, yeah, I would, I would, I, um, yeah, I would agree with with all of that, all of those sentiments, and I, I would also say that I, I think it's great that um, you know, d- despite this unfortunate situation, that this has put mental health um, for you know front front and foremost on on people's minds um, within the sporting world, within the tennis world, because um, you know it's, I, I, yeah, it's it's certainly of utmost importance. Um, we, I, I know at the college level um, with, within NCAA, there's been a lot of work that's been done on mental health um, within, um, within professional sporting organizations as well. And, uh, you know, sometimes it takes a situation like this to ultimately make a positive change where a, a player um, like, like Naomi, um, who has, you know, spoken out in the past, um, I remember uh, I believe it was last year with the George Floyd situation. Uh, not only did she wear the masks at the um, at the U.S. Open, but I, uh, she had, there was also a situation where she um, decided to sit out or was planning to sit out for one of her matches, and then ultimately the tournament um, put off the matches for that that entire day. Um, but I, you know, it's it to me it, it really is okay. Um, she is speaking out and hopefully this inspire not only puts mental health on people's minds and the importance of it, but hopefully it leads to a positive change. And, uh, you know, we can, we can only hope for that one positive change I, I saw. Um, and I, would have to follow up on this to see if any players, um, made, made the, the company actually, um, spend any money on this, but the, the, the app calm, um, which, uh, is a meditation app that we have, um, mentioned with with it with as well as other meditation apps like headspace and waking up um, on this podcast we're referring to meditation and mindfulness um the app calm came out you know very supportive of naomi osaka and said that they were willing to pay the fines of any any player that um over the the rest of the year any player that decided not to do media for uh, mental health related reasons so um you know that's I, I thought it was great, great to see. And hopefully, you know, hopefully there's a, the silver lining of this unfortunate situation is that this leads to better conversations regarding mental health and hopefully inspires a positive change um, regarding players' um, connection to the media and that, um, you know, that players don't feel obligated always um, to maybe, you know, spill their, their guts and have to worry about what might come out wrong or what they might say wrong, you know, shortly, shortly after a match, particularly, um, you know, if they lost or they're not in a good place emotionally. I think also there's this misperception that just because somebody's famous and they've made a lot of money and they've been successful in their sport, that they're somehow immune to, you know, mental health issues like, oh, what could possibly be wrong in that person's life? And um, I think we need to uh, continue to have a lot of empathy for these athletes. Um, many of us can't even imagine the pressure that they face, the media scrutiny that they face, um, the way they're talked about in the media and have to read about themselves and so forth. It's, um, it's, it's very difficult for, uh, you know, those of us who don't go through that to even comprehend what someone like Naomi Osaka goes through on a daily basis. Um, and, you know, to be honest, it takes a lot of courage to go out there and, and put yourself on the line every day, um, whether that be in practice or in competition um, at that level. You know, there's so much riding on it. And, um, 
and you know, I think even, perhaps even more on the on the women's side, there's such scrutiny of of female athletes in in different ways, and um, you know, many of it, much of that, not healthy at all for the athlete. So um, I think it's you know, just for our listeners, it's really important to keep in mind that um, you know, just because somebody is successful doesn't mean that they're not or that they are immune to all these things. There's so much pressure, I think, at that level, and. Um, you know, so again, yeah, I think uh, we both express our um, our support for what Naomi did and and, and uh, her journey back to the game. We hope she comes back really soon because she's, uh, I mean, well, we're coming up on hardcourt season, you know, after Wimbledon. And uh, she's just a wonderful player to watch on hardcourts. I mean, some of the tennis that she played at last year's U.S. Open was just fantastic. Some of the best women's tennis I've seen played. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I, you know, we, we certainly wish her the best. And uh, I think it was encouraging to see all, um, you know, not that there wasn't, not that, I mean, th- th- there was criticism, you know, from cer- certain corners of um, the internet and social media, but there's also an uh, outpouring of support um, totally. from, from other tennis players, from other athletes. Um, so that was, that was certainly very encouraging. And yeah, we, we certainly wish her the best. Yeah. So shall we move on to um, – we'll talk a little bit more about the women's uh, draw at the French Open, maybe more specifically the final. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so we had two, two first-time finalists, and um, the French Open seems to be the tournament where lots of first-time winners uh, get their start, right? Um, on the women's side. Yeah, on the women's side, for sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, not on the men's side. That, I haven't seen much of that in a while. Um, but certainly on, on the women's side. And so we had uh, Barbara Krejcikova and Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova, um, you know, both of whom had you know, interesting stories coming into, into the final. I know you had mentioned uh, off-air, Josh, you know, Krejcikova. Um, and maybe you can talk about this. You know, a player is number one in the world in doubles and you know, made a decision that she wanted to do something about that. Yeah, yeah, definitely, um, you know, a, a very inspiring decision where uh, this is a player who has re- has reached the top of the game. It doubles, has been number one, has won Grand Slam titles um, in women's doubles and decided, hey, I, that's, you know, I, I want more. I, I want to reach the highest heights in singles as well. Um, and yeah, the the level that, that she played in, including that, um, yeah, it, it, including the final, um, and not that, you know, we should also shouldn't, um, we also shouldn't, we should make sure that we mention that she did win the doubles title as well. Um, so she won the singles and the doubles title at the same tournament. Not sure who the last person to do that it was. I assume it was one of the Williams sisters. I would have to assume. You would think um, so. Yeah. Yes. Um, but no, d- definitely, um, definitely inspiring that you know this is somebody who has already reached um you know a, a tremendous amount of success the, the most success really um the the number one ranking as well as uh, grand slam titles on the double side and decided to not you know purely make that transition but start to play singles and to be able to win a grand slam title um you know relatively shortly after that decision is is very inspiring yeah and it just shows what can happen when you commit to something. And uh, she clearly had the tools. In fact, I follow um, uh, a WTA coach on, on Twitter 
who had mentioned that um, Krejcikova practiced with his player a few years ago prior to uh, a WTA event, and she at the time was mostly playing doubles. And they played a, a singles match, and Krejcikova just spanked his player. And he was <laughs> like, okay, um, this, this player, you know, this woman is going to be something if she really can get her, you know, get it together out on the singles court because she had the weapons already even a few years ago. Um, and so it's, it's great to see this now coming to fruition um, because her game is very, very solid. And um, you don't get to number one in the world in doubles that's, uh, without having a solid game. That's, you know, that's not a fluke that happens, right? So um, it's always great to see, I think, new faces coming to, to the fore here. Um, you know, as opposed to her opponent, uh, Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova, who, who has been around a while. Um, you, know, you mentioned to me, Josh, that uh, you know, she was number one in the world, the juniors, when she was 14. So she's 29 now. So she's been around on the scene for over 15 years as a player. And I read an article earlier this week um, in which she was quoted as saying a part of her development that has uh, helped her within the last year is that um, she's really matured a lot in the last year. And I thought that was really cool for someone 29 years old to mention that they're you know still maturing. You know, I think we often associate the word maturity or maturing with uh, adolescents and teenagers as they become young adults. But um, I think it's important that we understand that all these players, all of us, can continue to mature in, in various ways, you know, that we become emotionally smarter, intellectually smarter. Um, and it just sounds like she's kind of come into herself a little bit. Um, unfortunately, she had some some injury issues in the final that I think probably hampered her a little bit, but, um, you know, it was, it was an interesting match, uh, nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think you bring up a good point, um, uh, w- w- with, uh, Pavlia Chankova that, um, you know, she's somebody that, uh, you know, from the time she was 14, she was, um, playing at the world stage playing, she was number one in the world, um, and for the juniors. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's not, not that she didn't, reach her potential before this. And again, we've, we've talked about that word potential and how that's a loaded term and how sometimes the, the pressure and expectations of um, success can, can actually be, be harmful um, and, and can put a lot of pressure on, on somebody, but um, somebody that I'm sure from the time she was a young age, people were telling her that she was going to be the next, you know, grand slam winner or next world number one. Um, and she, yes, she, she reached different quarterfinals along the way, but, um, to reach her first, uh, grand slam final, um, 15 years after, um, getting to number one in the world in the juniors is, you know, it's, it's truly a feat. And, uh, you know, I, I think, um, the, the fact that, um, you know, both of these players, uh, share that they they both have um, you know been working with sports psychology professionals and it, it really seems that Pavlyuchenkova has um, you know really found that you know come into her own and, and really you know figured out what what her game is and what what motivates her what drives her um, where maybe you know with um, we talk about maturity but with an adolescent or when you know when somebody's learning the game and they're they're younger um oftentimes you don't have that as complete of an understanding of really you know 
what the the way that you want to play the game in terms of style why are you playing in the first place what motivates you so oftentimes through life experiences through maturity you have a, a you know a, a deeper understanding of a lot of these themes um, so I, I would agree that it's really really cool to see really inspiring to see a player um, you know reach their their highest um, their highest heights or their you know reach a grand slam final um, at age at age 29 and also both of these players um, you know were ranked lower we're, we're both at, um, ranked in the 30s in the world um, neither of them were the the top players that were being looked at in terms of you know players to watch for to win the tournament necessarily so um, the self-belief that's required for um, for both of these players to um, to really break through and to um, to beat higher ranked players along the way is is also very notable yeah I think um, when we think of the maybe the rest of the women's field in the French Open this year um, I think Maria Sakari is another player who looks like she could be ready for a breakthrough, right? She had a really close match with Krejcikova. Um, uh, you know, Iga Sviantek, she, you know, she lost to Sakari, but it was a, it was a, it was a tough match. And I think she is still showing that um, she's, she's going to be a force um, to be dealt with, right? And, you know, she had a great, uh, great spring on the clay. Um, and, you know, speaking of uh, Iga Sviantek and, you know, the, the sports psych angle, you mentioned that both Krejcikova and Pavlyuchenkova I've started working with with um, with sports psych professionals, and the common theme that I saw in their quotes about that was just how those people were able to make them both feel better going on to the court. Um, and that sounds like such a small thing, right? It's not even necessarily a technique per se, like from a sports psych perspective, but it's really just helping the player. Um, deal with any doubts that they may have when they go out there, right? Because we all have doubts when we go out onto the court. And perhaps this is even part of Pavlyuchenkovic's you know, maturity. She only started working with uh, this person prior to Madrid, a couple of weeks before the Madrid tournament. Um, but, you know, she was saying how, um, you know, the, that, that person just helped her feel better, feel so much better on the court. Um, and Krejcikova mentioned that she started talking to her sports psych during the tournament after she played Sloane Stevens. And again, it was a lot about um, the kinds of like self-talk to use, simple things to focus on. So not, you know, not overcomplicating it, not letting the, the sort of the doubting voices become the dominant ones. And, and so again, it's not like, you know, these are, you know, huge techniques, but I think one of the nice things that we're seeing on the women's side, especially with these, these sports psych professionals is that they are, um, helping these young women to become smarter, uh, helping them to become, uh, able to handle these pressure situations a little bit better, right? They're giving them just a little bit more of like that foundation of confidence and self-belief that they need when they when they go out there, so that they can they can perform to their best, and um, this is a trend that I you know I hope continues. Um, you know, on the WTA tour, I'd love to see it more on the ATP tour as well. At least it's not talked about as openly on that side. It doesn't seem as it is on on the women's side, um, but I think it's a great trend, and um, you know I think this is a you know great time for 
for anybody who wants to get into sports psychology to be into the field. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would, I would echo, echo that. And, uh, no, I, I would, um, I, I have that same observation that on the, on the men's side, um, a lot of the players maybe aren't quite as open about working with, um, sports psychology professionals. Um, I, I do remember an example of, uh, Daniel Medvedev when he faced, uh, Nadal, um, and, and went all the way to the, um, us open finals that he actually had a sports psychology professional with him, you know, throughout the tournament and his box as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think we're, um, you know, in terms of the stigma, um, with psychology in general, that's, it's lessening, but it's, you know, it, it takes time. And, uh, on the men's side, for whatever reason, there, you know, perhaps more of that stigma still exists or players, you know, don't want us to be seen as weak or, um, feel like, oh, I, this is something I need to do. Um, where instead that, you know, I, I, there's, we're starting to get to that point, I think on, on both sides where it's, Hey, this is why wouldn't I do, do everything in my control to be the best player I could be, um, to, you know, to do everything in terms of the physical side, in terms of, you know, fine tuning my strokes, in terms of getting match play, in terms of the strength and conditioning side, the sleep, um, recovery side, but also, Hey, why, why shouldn't I be doing everything possible within the mental aspects of the game? Um, so I, you know, even if the male players aren't maybe talking as openly about it, it's, it's certainly, going on behind the scenes and uh no it's it's inspiring and, and i've used that word a few times this uh this episode but it's it is um I, I would agree that it's an exciting time for the field of sports psychology that um you know no, some of the most notable players in the world some of the top athletes in the world are um speaking out openly about uh you, the performance side of sports psychology. We talked about that, uh, Brian, you mentioned that that difference between the mental health side of, uh, sports psychology and, uh, really the mental skills side, um, and that shift. And there, uh, throughout sports, there's been a lot of athletes that have talked openly about it, including, uh, Michael Phelps, who's certainly one of the most decorated athletes, um, in any sport of all time. Um, and in NBA, Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan have, uh, spoken out very openly about some of their struggles and about, um, the, the, the need for mental health support. Um, so I think, uh, you know, having, athletes in tennis, uh, both, both male and female, um, speaking out openly about their use of sports psychology professionals and, you know, at, at times having them with them, um, you know, in their box or, uh, you know, mentioning them in interviews is definitely an encouraging sign. And speaking of, uh, mentally tough athletes probably need to talk about Novak Djokovic, you know, um, in our expectations conversation, you know, him possibly achieving number 19 was, was out there. And, but his path to the final was, um, you know, he had to um, potentially go through Federer, but that didn't happen, but he did have to go through Nadal in the semi. Many people kind of wish that that was the final, but the, the French Federation always goes with the, the rankings as opposed to uh, Wimbledon, which will, you know, kind of seed in their own way. Um, and that's the way it worked out. And then he had to come back a couple of days later and, and play Stefano Tsitsipas in the, in the final. Um, when you think about what Djokovic achieved and the mental fortitude it took, you know, what, what's your viewpoint on, on what Novak Djokovic did here? 
Yeah, it was very, very impressive. I mean, just just to think back um, to the fourth round, uh, he lost the first two sets to Musetti, the the nineteen year old Italian. Um, but the the way that he was able to turn that match around, um, winning six one, six zero, and then four zero before Musetti retired, um, possibly could have let could have been that that extra confidence um in in the final um a few matches later that hey that's a um that's a positive thing to be able to look back at that in recent memory right just from a few uh matches earlier just from you know less than a week earlier that hey i just came back from two sets down and yes it wasn't in the final the first time but um to be able to look back at that so um i think you know the the fact that he was on the brink, not one, not only once, but twice throughout the tournament, down two sets, fought back. Um, and I, I know you'll, you'll talk about a quote um, from, from this experience of clawing his way back in the final. Um, and then had a, you know, had a tough match against Berrettini, um, who's, you know, so certainly no slouch on, on clay or on any surface, um, winning in four sets. And then, yeah, that, that match against Nadal where, um, you know, you think back to last year where Nadal won the first set six love, ended up winning the set, the match in three sets. And uh, Nadal is just a, a force at the, the French Open. He'd, he's won the tournament 13 times. Up until this year, he'd only lost twice ever. Um, going into Nadal's match against Djokovic, he was 105 and two. Um, lifetime you can let that that statistic sink in for a second um nobody at any tournament has is even close to, to to that kind of a statistic um and the fact that Djokovic came back yet again in this match where Nadal was up five five love in the first set he was able to uh, get the break back made that first set competitive to uh, bring it to six three and then uh, winning those next three sets and really um after the third set which was a nail biter went went very back and forth in that third set tie break um just being able to really elevate his level for that fourth set um to overtake nadal at the french open which is probably as impressive of a as, of a sporting feat as can be done um considering how rare it's been over the last um 16 years um and then to to win um in the final against sissy pass coming back again for a second time now um from two sets down um and really turning turning that match around and uh, asserting his will and his dominance um in the final um is uh yeah it, I, I think more and more people now are making the argument for for him potentially being the greatest of all time um again this is something we'll have to um, you know, revisit as their, their careers are over. But um, no, I, I would say, um, and I, you know, would love to hear your, your, um, your input as well, of course. Um, but I, I would say the, the will to constantly, regardless of the score, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of time, moments when he wasn't playing well, perhaps wasn't feeling well, um, the ability to continue to believe and to, come back time and time again um, is to me what has helped make Djokovic the the champion that he 
really has become, whether it's, and you, you can think back to past situations, the 2019 Wimbledon final, um, I believe it was the 2011 U.S. Open semifinal, uh, both of which against Federer, you know, fought off um, match points. So um, this ability to come back from the brink and still believe and to fight back one point at a time is, to me, what really made makes Djokovic um, such such a champion. For sure. And if you think about Nadal's now three losses, this is probably the only one where he was fully healthy. You know, when he lost to Soderling, um, people don't seem to remember this, but he took the rest of the summer off after that match. Uh, it was also the summer that his parents were thinking of divorcing, so there's very close family. So there was clearly something going on with him in that, that particular summer. Um, and then when he lost to Djokovic in the quarterfinals, I think it was in 2014, um, he was just coming back from injury. He really wasn't right. He was in a total funk back then. So this, this victory, I think, is, is the most impressive one of, of the three losses because he was fully healthy. Um, I don't know that he was playing as well as he was last fall, and Djokovic was playing better, for sure. You know, even though that, that third set was very dramatic, um, the quality of it wasn't uh, that great. There were a lot of errors there, especially from Rafa. Um, and I think, in many ways, uh, Djokovic can get in your head. The way he can retrieve so many balls, it's very difficult to hit winners against him. And, uh, you know, with some of the errors that Rafa was making, you could see perhaps feeling some pressure that he needed to to hit close to the lines. And uh, at times he was just just missing those, Um, you know, and so that's a mental aspect of the game as well. Right. And that's, you know, when you can do what Djokovic does, which is get into kind of a refuse to miss mentality and his movement is so good. Right. That's that's he, he is um, in, in many ways, like what Andy Roddick would say is the, is the perfect pro um, in that his movement is great and he's really consistent. Um, you know, I think uh, one of our former guests, Coach Bill Tim, what he loves about Djokovic, and I think he likes this about Nadal as well, is that what helps these guys be great is that they're kind of a defense first type player. They can get everything back. The movement is so good. And then they can create offense off of that. And that, I think that's what, what Djokovic uh, was able to do against Nadal. I think against Tsitsipas, I mean, it was an interesting match. You know, he, um, he appeared a little tired, especially in that, that second set. And um, in his press conference, he was asked about um, what happened between the second and, and third sets. So, you know, and he had a, this conversation with himself. So I'll, I'll read the quote from the... Um, the transcript, because I think it's it's really interesting. And it's also, again, one thing we see with Djokovic, he's not afraid to show that he's human with having doubts and, and negative voice and so forth. So he said, um, to be honest, I was never really vocal when I speak to myself. I keep those internal conversations internally in my head. But this time, the voice. Obviously, there's always two voices inside. There's one telling you that you can't do it, that it's done, it's finished. That voice was pretty strong after that second set. So I felt that that was the time for me to actually vocalize the other voice and try to suppress the first one that was saying I can't make it. I told myself I can do it, encouraged myself. I strongly started to repeat that inside of my mind, tried to live it with my entire being. 
Once I started playing in that third set, especially in the first few games, I saw where my game is at. It kind of supported that second voice that was more positive, more encouraging. After that, there was not much of a doubt for me. And what's interesting, if you listen to the Tsitsipas press conference, he notes that when Djokovic came back, he was a completely different player. He was reading his game, and and Tsitsipas kind of lost his his rhythm and his feel for it. Um, And I, I wanted to highlight that quote again because, number one, it shows that Djokovic, again, not afraid to be human, tells us what's really going on. Um, and isn't it, in a way, good to understand that the guy who's the best player in the world also has doubts, also has a negative voice that he has to deal with? And, of course, we do see him maybe emoting more so than than Roger and Rafa from a negative perspective, but he always is able to, to turn it around. Um, and so... That, to me, is just one of the more impressive things that he was able to do. Um, you know, we talked about routines, Josh, in a past episode, you know, having that between point routine and having a green light routine and a yellow light routine. This is a great example of what the red light routine is. You, you get off the court and just change the scenery so that when you come back, you feel a little bit fresher mentally and emotionally. And, and perhaps there are things that you can do in that break, um, like Djokovic did against CC Paz, that that turns the match around. And um, you know, so a great example of um, of a player and his mental toughness and fortitude, and and using um, uh, an encouraging self talk voice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, to to me, and this is when I when I work with athletes and we talk about self talk. Um, one of the one of the qualities to me of successful self-talk is to be able to sort of argue against negative self-talk as it as it comes up yeah. um, not not you don't want to expect that that there never will be any negativity there never will be any doubts or any um, pessimism or or whatever it may be but to almost be able to be a lawyer or to be able to argue against whatever sort of negativity or irrational, at times, self-talk you may be encountering, um, and and this is a great example of Djokovic doing just that. Um, where yes, he's experiencing those doubts. Yes, he's um, you know he's he's down and out, um, or at least that that voice in his head is sounding pretty down and out. But he's able to argue against it. He's able to advocate for himself and believe that hey. I can, I can do this. And uh, I, I thought it was interesting that he said that he, he actually verbal, you know, verbalized this. Um, and, uh, you know, to, I, I think that's, that's something that, uh, you know, everybody can, can learn from that. Um, there always is that other side there, you know, you're, you're seeing things in a particular way through a particular skew or your perspective, but you can always look at it through a different, through a different perspective. Um, and I, I like that idea of, you know, when necessary, verbalizing it and saying, um, you know, I can, I can do this, do You know, I'm, I'm Novak Djokovic. Um, so, uh, no, I, I think that that quote is, is definitely very, very telling and shows that mindset that he has that yes, he experiences negativity. And, you know, we've, we've talked about that in, in past episodes. Um, but he's also able to pump himself up and to, 
turn a match around and um, I'm sure some of our listeners and viewers saw him pumping himself up. Um, I think it was against Berrettini. I could be wrong. Maybe against Musetti to an empty crowd, um, letting out a very loud, very loud uh, holler or very loud, um, you know, celebration. So, uh, so yeah, no, I I think uh, his, his self-talk makes it possible at times for him to turn matches around because um, he demonstrated through that quote that, you know, that you, you need to at times be able to argue against that negativity and that doubt and that, that, you know, that devil on your shoulder that you need to bring up, bring that angel into play to, uh, to, to make that other argument. And I think the sport of tennis, just again, the scoring system, it does that to you because it's, it takes such a long time to win a match, and especially a three out of five. There's a lot of there's a lot between the start and the end in terms of the number of points, and or again where every point has a winner and a loser, and then there are games, and there's just so much going on there, and it's a lot to deal with. and And if he had been even just a little bit tired from the Nadal match, his ability to perhaps deal with some of those emotions and those thoughts probably somewhat compromised, and so. Him having this sort of really verbal, vocal intervention with himself is, is sounds like exactly what he needed to do. And um, it's impressive that he had the recognition to do it. And I think that's where um, you know most players wouldn't have that. Um, they wouldn't necessarily – they might take the bathroom break or whatever, but would they be able to, to turn it around the way – and so um, really impressive that he, that he pulled that off in, in that way. And, uh, yeah, you mentioned the greatest of all time. He's certainly going to make a, a good play for it. He's the youngest of the top three. He's the healthiest of the top three. And he's the um, defending champion at Wimbledon. And he's certainly won the U.S. Open before. So not only could we – I mean, he, he's now won each Grand Slam twice – he could actually win the calendar Grand Slam, um, and, and that's certainly on the table. And would you, you know, doubt him to pull it off? I think he's probably the best bet we've had on the men's side to do it in a really long time, given the how solid he is on on both grass and hard courts. Yeah, it's true. He beat, beating Nadal at the French Open, considering how few times it's been done um, it was probably the, the toughest um, feat in terms of, of accomplishing that um, where uh, yeah. And, and now that that has been accomplished and he's won two of the four, um, there's only two remaining, which he's won each multiple times. Um, yeah. He's, he's certainly the man to beat. Um, not, not only just in terms of him being number one, but in terms of, you know, being the defending champion now at three of the four um, grand slams and just this to, to me, I'll, I'll go back to the fact that he kept coming back from being behind and it's tough to beat somebody when even when you're ahead, you know, in the back of your mind that he has a long track record of coming back from these exact types of situations. Um, and that's, that's a, a huge mental edge when, 
when you've done that before and your opponents know that you've done that before. So he's certainly the man to beat. There's also the um, Olympics this year in Tokyo. Could be, um, you know, wouldn't pet against him there on a, on a hard court, certainly. Um, so we'll see. Hey, again, I, I think we'll, you know, we'll, we'll wait a little longer for the, the greatest of all time discussion, but uh, he's making his case stronger now after after this tournament certainly than than the case he was able to make before this yeah i mean roger federer never did beat rafael nadal in paris and um now djokovic has two wins over him and like i said before i think this last one being the really impressive one and and as you said josh this is uh uh, to go through Nadal to win a Grand Slam like this is uh, is, is an amazing feat, and uh, yeah, we'll see what the rest of the summer holds. And, you know, so overall, I thought it was an interesting um, French Open this year. You know, from a from a mental perspective, sports psych perspective. Um, you know, it started off with obviously Naomi Osaka and that whole thing, uh, but then it ended up with you know two first time finalists and uh, and an amazing uh, journey by Novak Djokovic through the draw. Uh, to to win to win number nineteen. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, where uh, I remember last last French Open, we were talking about Nadal winning yet another French Open and Iga Swiatek winning her first, um, and now we have Krejcikova winning her first um, singles Grand Slam title. Um, and Djokovic, though it's just his second. Um, at Roland Garros winning yet another um, Grand Slam and inching closer to um, Nadal and Djokovic, or sorry, Nadal and Federer at 20 Grand Slams and Djokovic is now w- only one Grand Slam behind them at 19. Yeah, wouldn't that be amazing if all three of them were at 20? But, you know, middle of the summer, uh, that would be amazing. So, well, that's our show for today. I want to thank you for listening. For more on today's show, please check out the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions for me and Josh, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag tennisiq. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube, so you can be notified of new episodes. You can also check out our Instagram page where we are posting new notifications as well. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.